Three minutes past four. Let's uh, talk trending topics. Trending news right now. We discuss what's happened in social media looking at the past 24 hours. And that's our trending topics feature here on SFM Sound Away. Good morning, fam. If you've just uh, joined us on this Wednesday, a happy one to you. We speak to Mandy Sampulo today, social commentator. Mandy, sir, good morning. Good morning, Asanda. Okay, let's go straight to it. Hashtag COP26. We're talking there. African leaders are speaking on day two of this global environmental summit uh, in Glasgow in uh, Scotland. Uh, what can mm-hmm. you tell us? Well, um, just just what's in the news about the, the was it Uhuru Kenyatta of, of Kenya just basically making the comment that um, basically the developed nations need to step up and, and assist Africa with moving towards this uh, just transition. And that comes just as the news um, that South Africa has actually received. I think it's 130 billion rand in, in funding to do just that. Um, that will help us to make this just transition to repurpose our old coal-fired um, power stations and to basically make sure that, that there are jobs in the new green in green economy that's coming. What are the African leaders saying at the actual conference? Because South Africa is not there. Our president is not there in attendance. Um, well, basically just that um, Kenyatta has basically just called on the wealthier nations um, to just take into consideration special needs and circumstances um, of Africa and the fight against climate change. Um, and particularly just uh, continues the story about how effectively um, that the, the developed nations have actually been the ones to con- contribute the most to, to the climate effects that the, that the global south is actually experiencing the worst of right now. Um, so we're talking about, of course, rising sea levels, um, and in particularly Mauritius. Sorry, the Seychelles was mentioned in, in, in that conversation. Um, and effectively, for me, this just reminds me of um, was it COP21 when Jacob Zuma actually made these comments um, that the Western developed nations needed to step up, um, and that it literally was about being on the right side of history, considering that they are the ones who caused the most damage, and, and that Africa was still trying to get into. Um, industrializing using the old coal-fired plants as as nations like the United States have done to basically achieve the kinds of economic growth that they've experienced over the last uh, 50 years or so. What about sentiments from uh, analysts who say there's a lack of commitment on the part of some African leaders? I mean, we know, as you mentioned, that African countries are sort of dependent on donor partners in terms of finance to tackle this issue. Uh, there's also an issue of awareness creation that should be a priority. So a move away from donor partners and taking things in our hands, so to speak. Are the people of the continent uh, aware of where we need to be in terms of understanding of the effects of climate change and how can we move away from donors? Um, I think that's a very, very broad conversation that's been happening, of course, with climate activists throughout the continent and specifically in South Africa. Um, of course, we have some comments from some of those some some, some of those commentators, which I'll get to. Um, but of course, we know this is a you know this is part of a long, broad conversation about um, about aid. It brings to mind, for instance, the Tanzanian uh, economist Damisa Moyo's book. Dead aid, where she was basically just arguing about this dependency of uh, an aid from the West, um, this, this sort of talking about this historical debt that that the developed nations have to Africa, and also speaking about the effects of aid on the continent, and one of them being that effectively Africa is not taking charge of its own destiny, and being able to to plot its own to plot its own um, improvement, its own path towards improving. 
Um, and, and effectively, I think that's just part of that broader conversation. And specifically for South Africans, of course, we will know that, I mean, South Africa right now has an energy an energy minister in Guadalajara who's not really welcomed the news about about the funding South Africa has received to, to make this just transition and still is looking towards making a slower transition away from coal and is still sort of is pushing coal and pushing towards nuclear, um, and, you know, energies such, such as nuclear. Um, and so this is part of that broader conversation, and, and particularly, of course, South Africans will remember that South Africa is, is going through, um, has this uh, car, power, car power ships, um, emergency energy ships, um, uh, this company uh, positioning to provide power ships power to South Africa via ships that will be um, stationed on our, on our, I think, on our Indian coast. Um, which, of course, haven't received, which have now been going through, I think it was just over a year-long process with the uh, uh, Department of Environment and Fisheries, Forestries and Fisheries, um, where they've actually just not met the the commitments um, that they've been required to meet um, to to pass uh, environmental master for this project to go forward. And this is a project that's going to cost South Africa potentially 10.9 billion rand a year, um, over 20 years, if I'm if I'm if I'm correct in my memory, um, and so basically I bring this up just to basically say that while South Africa is receiving this aid, South Africa is also at the same time potentially trying to get into a deal that would commit it to to this cow power ships emergency um, electricity situation that would of course see us spending in the opposite direction. So it's it's just sort of this mismatch of what we're doing and basically what we're saying and what we're doing is not necessarily matching up and specifically just looking at our leadership being Guadalajara in in the energy ministry who's actually just not not actually playing ball in terms of where where these agreements are going forward at COP26. Well, the major part of that shift you speak of is only supposed to be done by 2050 in terms of projections and plans in the South African side of things to a shut mm-hmm. majority of ESCOM's coal-fired plants. We know that ESCOM is, South Af- is, is, is Africa's biggest greenhouse gas emitter. Would it not have made a difference for our president to be there? Uh, I mean, Kenya, yes, Seychelles, yes, but Seychelles, they're less responsible for the planet's destruction in terms of the continent, South Africa being the biggest greenhouse gas emitter. Would it not have made a difference? And also just to say 2050 is a long time from here, guys. 2050 is a long time from here. But, of course, um, just remember COP20, this, this COP conference has been happening since, I think, 1995. And so there's been a range of commitments that have been made, of course, the Kyoto Protocol, I think, in 1997. So this is something that's been in, in discussion for almost, well, I'd say almost, what, 20 years now, nearly 30 years. And so effectively, I mean, if you remember during the Trump administration, there was a warning that came through to that government to say we've, got, we've only got such a finite amount of time in which to reduce the temperature, the global temperature. And we have to start acting on this now. So there are there's been warnings for over 20, nearly 30 years. And of course, in the last five years, those warnings have accelerated. So the idea that 2050 is far away is, is, is not, uh, you know, it's something we've had to act on since probably the 19, I think if I'm correct, 1970s, 1980s, we've been getting these warnings about global warming and, 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 and you know, I wish we'd actually go back to that terminology 
instead of the softer terminology of climate change because global warming makes that more emergent, more urgent for us to actually deal with as soon as possible. And so you're seeing com- countries like the United States um, in the Biden administration, post-Trump, who'd actually pulled out of the Paris Accords during his presidency. You're seeing Biden now committing to halve emissions um, on the journey towards 2030. And so you're seeing people making much stronger commitments to, to change the situation because there is a, a very strong um, urgency to do this very, very quickly. Yes, and I mean, uh, the U.S. only re- uh, regressed or removed themselves for about a year, so that would speak to that urgency. But as you say, it's talks and calls that are intensified. I mean, if we talk about the last five years, that's when the Paris Accord, that international treaty or treaty on climate change was adopted. But is action intensifying more over and above the talks that are intensifying? What are the climate activists saying? Well, is this the type of thing the likes of the Greta Thunbergs would be happy about? No, Greta Thunberg, of course, has made a statement about, you know, COP26 is just more talking and not enough action is because that's that's been the track record of this conference is that people make commitments and, and there hasn't, countries have been, world leaders have been making commitments and there hasn't just been strong enough action on this. And so it continues to be, to sort of this continues to be the, the narrative. And so... One, of course, continues just to, well, we wait we wait and see to see whether this actually happens with the urgency that, that people are recommitting to now in 2017, I mean, sorry, in 2021. Um, and, of course, climate activists continue to, to push for that. What would make more of a difference? Because as Greta is saying, she believes that there needs to be big public pressure. She's organized a, a strike on Friday and a march mm-hmm. on Saturday. Are people that motivated to even go to these marches and strikes when there is, I mean, COVID-19 that we're dealing with? Well, yes, COVID-19, of course. Um, but, you know, as, as Greta Thunberg is, is, has been saying, of course, for as long as her young life, she's been an activist in her young life, that ultimately this planet will, will go on without us and, and we'll be the ones to, to not survive this planet, but the planet will evolve to live without us on it. And so it is it is clearly imperative for our own survival as a species on this planet to, to get involved in creating enough public pressure to actually get our world leaders to deal with this. Okay, let's talk uh, the IEC now, the latest developments then from the Independent Electoral Commission. Uh, another target was made here of 90% in terms of results counting by uh, the evening, by midday, but uh, we only achieved 60% of vote counting by 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. this morning. Uh, what do you make of that in terms of can we see it as a delay or is it uh, normal? I think at this stage there's been there's a long conversation that's being had about the change that, that what we're seeing this year with the voting since yesterday. Um, basically, the, some of the complaints with the IEC yesterday that the process is going a bit more slowly this year, um, and that the IEC basically is putting that largely down to, to changes in technology and glitches in the technology. So we saw, of course, um, the ANC also having having trouble registering their candidates, and and basically our reaction as a public. Um, um, you know, sort of being to to say, you know, but you, as a political party, you only have one job, which is to make sure your people are on are on the register. Um, and and the ANC countering that to say, no, there were technological glitches when we tried to register our candidates. And so it's bringing some of those things back into into the public discourse to go, okay, maybe the problems that they mentioned were actually quite serious. 
Um, and of course, we also heard yesterday that some people went to the voting stations um, attempting to vote and being turned away because they'd actually updated their registration status online um, and, and had the expectation that they would be able to vote yesterday and then got to the voting stations and were turned away. And that was, of course, being, that was, of course, blamed on, again, technology and, and glitches in the system. Um, we also had, uh, of course, if you, if you, I was following this on Twitter yesterday, seeing the actual scanning devices where people were struggling um, with the, the reports that, that the scanning devices weren't actually being used appropriately and, and people saying uh, that the excuse then was, or the explanation then was to say these are new devices which, which the, which the um, volunteers had not used before. So it seems that there are some you know, problems that are, are, are consistent across this whole process this year. Um, Let's just backtrack a bit and talk uh, the the actual counting of the votes. What are the chances that, and we'll come back to that, but Mm. on the actual counting of the votes, I mean, we, as I said, 90% was the estimate. We only got to 60%. Then the Mm. other estimate is that by Thursday, uh, Mm. the uh, voting will have been concluded. What are the chances that that can happen? I mean, we're looking at... Yeah, of course. But we're looking at, uh, again, I'll say so this, what we're seeing is also that there seems to be a bigger issue that I see at play that has to do with funding and resourcing and being able to, to achieve things like counseling in the kind of expected time and expected turnarounds that they've promised us. Because they had promised us that we would have pretty much um, a, a full picture by the end of Tuesday evening, which we didn't get by the end of Tuesday night. And so this is something that's being brought up again and to say these are part of this is, 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 is the result of austerity measures, you know, that have cut funding towards the IEC and to organizations like StatsSA. So we'll start seeing this in other organizations um, as, 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 you know, as time progresses. So these are some of the bigger challenges that the country is facing. And I think this is the, the effects are being shown through this election. We still have special votes. So how, what are the predictions there in terms of when these will be included in counting? I mean, it would be difficult to, to make those kinds of projections, but of course we just rely on what the IEC is, is of course telling us about how the process is going. And, and, like, and like we've mentioned, they, they kept shifting these, these goalposts. And so the only thing we can, as South African people, all we can do is wait. So to make um, predictions would be kind of difficult from that perspective. All right, talking about then what we are talking in terms of voter turnout, the IEC did predict back in July already that uh, mm-hmm. turnout would be low and the concerns mm-hmm. were over COVID-19 pandemic and they had approached the constitutional court to postpone the polls till fe- uh, Feb. That didn't happen. So why do you think it's become such a center of focus for us, the, the voter turnout? Well, of course, as, as, um, as you're aware, this will be, I think, the lowest turnout, um, one of the lowest years of turnout and possibly in, what is it, in the last since the, the democracy since 1994, and we're going to be seeing one of the worst results for the governing party as, uh, as a contributing factor of that. Um, and so the questions are being asked as to why that is, and, and so the, that would be a wide range of, of reasons. Um, but one of the main ones, people are mentioning voter apathy, and, and, and for me, I don't read it that way. I, I just read it as um, a frustration with effectively the political class the way that people are perceiving the political class and the way that they perceive uh, the political class to respond to issues of service delivery, to issues of governance. And they're not seeing 
um, effectively a connection between leaving their homes to go and vote for change, to go and vote to you know to build better communities with our government, and then they, and then the days after the elections and the months and years afterwards, not seeing um, the kinds of results that affirm effectively um, that affirm their choice to go and vote and to go and make these decisions. And so I think that's 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 a very significant part of it. Um, we can talk about all the range of failures of our state and the range of uh, range of failures of the most popular party in our country being the, the governing party, the African National Congress. Um, we could talk about all of uh, everything that everyone is aware of, um, effectively, you know, particularly with the proximity to, to COVID-19. We're looking at, you know, issues, massive issues like the corruption that played out in last year with the COVID relief funds. We're looking at issues that played out in the last couple of days, in the last week, being load shedding um, and effectively people just having a response to this to say, you know, what is the point of voting if we're not getting any any of the delivery that we've been promised for 27 years? On the note of IEC, we might as well speak about Action SA because that's uh, the other topic, uh, talking hashtag Herman Mashaba. So Action SA taking a number of wards uh, from the ANC in Soweto. Soweto, I mean, is considered the governing party's traditional struggle home. What mm-hmm. can we attribute this to? I mean, this is more of the, I, I think we first started noticing this significant trend in 2016 when um, when the ANC lost, of course, um, the city of Johannesburg, lost their, their hold over the, their majority of the city of Johannesburg. And that was largely attributed to this staying away of people in in um, historical ANC strongholds like so it's. Um, and if you are following this year in 2021, the account of um, um, what's it, uh, Wayne? What is his name again? Um, this, you know, analyst on uh, Darby Scott. Darby Scott has been doing these projections um, where he's showing the difference. He's showing all day yesterday the difference between the turnout in Soweto and the turnout, for instance, in the suburbs, and showing us this huge variance um, between the two the two uh, locations and showing that effectively the suburbs are showing a greater turnout um, than the southern suburbs, or specifically Soweto. So it's part of this, the story of the voter turnout and how that's actually affecting the governing party um, and, of course, uh, affecting it negatively. And, and so, as we've been watching the news over the last few months, over the last few years, we know, of course, there are lingering issues um, and, a, a, and a very sort of antagonistic relationship between the residents of Soweto and, and, and the governing party, which they, which they clearly have had a long, a long-standing affiliation with, and seeing, of course, their disappointment in their expectation for issues such as um, electricity supply and not and not those expectations not being met, and we've seen the the social uh, the, sorry the service delivery protests that have happened in relation to that. If you were watching yesterday when President Ramaphosa went to cast his vote in Shawelo in, in Soweto, we it was shown on social media that sort of the, the images of the journey towards the voting station that showed the aftermath of, of service delivery protests. We've just seen traffic, a traffic light on the ground and just basically debris on the roads um, in the aftermath of the service delivery protests. And, and Ramaphosa arriving at that station and being booed and in some of the clips that I saw from yesterday in Soweto where he went to cast his vote. So it tells us that, they, that they clearly there is, there is an antagonistic relationship developing between the ANC and its traditional stronghold. And, of course, uh, just forgetting to mention that, of course, 
some some members um, of of uh, the Soweto community actually decided to take it upon themselves to march to Lutuli House or near to Lutuli House over the weekend to go and protest um, to protest exactly this issue of of the, the lack of service delivery in their neighbourhood. So. So it is a multifaceted dilemma, and I mean, there'd be more than one reasons for it, but one can only put all the possible ones forward instead of just focusing on, you know, whatever we've seen. But uh, Mm -hmm. if Action SA, according to elections forecaster, is showing that it could perform at between 15 and 20 percent range in Mm -hmm. Soweto and surrounds, I mean, that's quite a significant number. So how much of this can we attribute to people just maybe preferring to vote outside of the township and that maybe the ANC hasn't completely lost its hold on the township dwellers. They just decided to vote elsewhere. Well, it would depend on effectively where one is registered. So one would have to be registered where one is, is domiciled or near to where one is domiciled to, the, to your voting for your ward, of course. Um, so one would, 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 would expect that people would be voting, of course, where they live because that would be the counselor that they would, that they would get. So that would be the first part of the, of the voting of the two ballot papers, the second part being voting overall for the city. Um, and effectively see, seeing that in massive, massive, um, we, of course, Action SA is growing from a 0% base. So the fact that Mashava has been able to, or Mashava's party has been able to achieve the gains that, that they've achieved in, in you know, such a short time of their existence, of course, also has a, has a lot, uh, you know, more factors to it, is a multifaceted, um, is a multifaceted outcome, considering he's actually been the mayor before. Um, and of course, you know, there's just a range of what their offering has been to South African people. So it's it's a range of issues and range of things that Mashaba was, um, what is it, campaigning on. So there's a lot of issues related to it. Of course, um, I don't want to talk about the, you know, the, the xenophobic twinge to, to some of his campaigning, but there were those elements too. And there's the larger element of him saying he, his main, main um, goal is to unseat the, the ANC democratically, constitutionally through the ballot. And and so the, there's just a range of issues. And of course, you can't deny that Action SA has a particular um, offering that it's, that it's um, delivering to the public that they're responding to. Also, it was the long weekend. People could have been traveling. People could have taken advantage of that time to just unwind. It's been a tough year going against uh, or going away to the coast and things like that. But also, uh, the majority of township dwellers in South Africa provide uh, most of the workforce in the middle and lower income jobs. I mean, mm-hmm. there's about 40, over 47 million people that live there. And that is a majority of our middle and lower income jobs. And but we know also that 2.2 million jobs were lost in South Africa. Uh, that's mm-hmm. according to Stats SA. So how much of that also could be a contributor in that there's low encouragement amongst people in townships? They, there could be lack of patriotism. There could be a feeling that one's voice doesn't matter because here we are, we've lost all these jobs in an already uh, dire uh, you know, situation where a lot of township dwellers are dealing with poverty. No, yes, I mean that's a you know a national issue, but of course, township dwellers, of course, being the most affected um, and and you know feeling those effects most acutely. Um, so when we're talking about the national story of you know the three sort of the three terms that are becoming just speech fillers, as I hear from politicians, and and losing meaning, the triple challenges of poverty, unemployment, and inequality. 
um, that just are, again, like I say, becoming speech fillers because they, they, they've just been said so many times. Uh, and they're starting to lose the, this commitment to addressing those triple challenges is starting to, to, to sort of wear thin because we're not seeing, you know, action that is actually addressing these issues. And, of course, as you mentioned, the job losses and, of course, um, you know, just the broader issues of what COVID-19 has exacerbated our ex- existing issues in the South African social fabric. So it's basically just, you know, this sort of unraveling issues that we've been living with for the last 27 years that just haven't been addressed. Um, and one of those things just being, um, like I say, COVID-19 just exacerbating it, but we're also seeing besides the job losses, many people falling out of the middle class, there's shocking numbers of people who, I mean, the middle class losing significant numbers as well, which was the ANC's, you know, good story to tell of the 27 years of growing the black middle class. So it almost seems, you know, the sort of a, of a betrayal of the promise um, that was made to us in mm. 1994. Okay, and finally, let's talk Meghan Markle, uh, the Duchess, uh, who has, I think, a report was done in terms of how much hate she receives on Twitter. There was an entire campaign allegedly, and she's the most trolled person, and uh, uh, mm-hmm. online abuse that she received in 2019 is what's being cited here. After all this, I think it was done by Bot Sentinel. Uh, after mm-hmm. all of this, representatives for Harry and Meghan were uh, contacted, but they could not be reached for comment. Why do you think they should even respond to this? I think, you know, because they've been quite open uh, in the recent past, you know, just after leaving the royal family and moving to the States, they've been quite open about their challenges that they've faced, and particularly, uh, you know, this, the racial response to to even the issue of, you know, what what the child would look like, what baby Archie would look like, you know, questions from their own family members of, of that nature. So they've been that open with us, with the public, to tell us, you know, just basically how, how their family is receiving it. Um, and so this, I suppose, they've created an expectation that they would be open to speaking about things of this nature. She did a, um, a tell-all interview with Oprah Winfrey. I mean, what more yeah. do we need after that? <laughs> I think we're just expecting continuous engagement on, on these issues now and expecting them to be open, you know, to comment on every and everything of this nature. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, nobody would be surprised by this. I mean, we've seen, you know, talk show talk show hosts like Pierce Morgan using their platform um, to basically, you know, to slate to, to slate Megan Duchess Megan over, you know, just the pettiest of things. Mm. Um, and we've seen this also from tabloid, the tabloid media in, in the UK, that there has been, you know, a, a, a racial a racial slant towards the ways that she's been critiqued in public. Um, and, you know, just the inequity in the way they, just the unfairness in the way that they, they approach issues that have to do with Meghan versus issues that have to do with other members of the royal family. And so it just doesn't come as a surprise, I don't think, to anybody. And it um, is so petty and good for them that they've distanced themselves from palace life and uh, some mm-hmm. senior royal duties. They just need to live their lives. Let's leave it there, Mandisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy Wednesday to you. Thank you, you too. Mandisa Mpulo, social commentator, discussing social media trends in the last uh, 24 hours. So in terms of our poll question, uh, voting-wise on Twitter, 66.7% of you say yes, those voters who were turned away should have been given another day as an opportunity, and uh, 33.3% are saying no. So those are some of your views then on our poll.